Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Walid Nasser, the board member at Yale Science and Engineering Association. And today we have a very special guest, Stephen Plume. He's the managing director of the Entrepreneurs Fund, talking to us uh, about his really interesting trip to Trans-Catalina Trail, but also technology and venture capital. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Walid. Great to be here. Um, um, so why, why don't we start with your introduction first and you know, what are you working on? And then tell us about your recent adventure. <laughs> sure. So let's see. I was Yale College class of 84. Um, uh, totally normal background for someone who's been in technology 30 years. I was a Soviet history major. Um, the world has uh, eliminated my major. Um, and you know, I think the other defining characteristic of my time at Yale was I ran, you know, cross country and track for four years. Um, and that's been an ongoing interest and activity for however many years it is since I graduated now. Um, although it does, you know, the pace gets slower. So, so funny you mentioned the Trans Catalina Trail. My wife and um, one of our sons and I just got back from doing uh, about 55 miles on the island of Catalina outside of Los Angeles, uh, off the coast of Los Angeles. Um, if anyone's interested, I just tell you when the trip report says there's no shade, believe them, there is no shade. Uh, so I had uh, I had several several hours on the trail to think about the think about the questions you sent over, um, but it was a, it was a good trip. If anyone's interested in Catalina, I recommend it. Um, if you don't like deserts, then I would find somewhere else on the west coast to hike. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, so let's let's talk about the, the the trends in in technology artificial intelligence areas that you focus on mostly b2b cloud uh, software as i understand uh, and and intersection of uh, uh, venture capital as well uh, what are some of the challenges opportunities trends you're seeing in in the space boy let's let's decompose that into into a bunch of things um, first let me put some um, I guess the lack of a better term, historical context onto this. I've been in Silicon Valley since 1987. Uh, so that's 34 years now, I guess. Um, am I doing my math right? Um, and this is the third major platform transition my career has spanned. Um, so I, I got out here just at the end of the old terminal host era. So that was, you know, dumb pieces of hardware out on what we would now think of as the edge, connecting really fundamentally to mainframes. Um, and that changed to client server. <clears throat> and one of the, uh, I guess, positive spiral, you know, positive feedback loops of client server was the simultaneous development of the relational database as opposed to the old hierarchical databases. And that kicked off a, an era of software development and software um, innovation that really lasted, gosh, I'd give it 20 years, right, on, on the relational database front. And, and, and most of our world exists, the world that you and I and everyone else interact with on a daily basis exists because of the relational database and client server. Then we hit you know, the internet and then ultimately SaaS and now the cloud, which are again, technology platform transitions, but the, the, the analogy I would put to the, the advent of the relational database is now a artificial intelligence, AI and machine learning 
starting to permeate applications, use cases, um, operational technology, information technology, so the OTIT split in a way that's very similar. They're becoming pervasive. Um, and that's all enabled by Moore's law and we could we could delve into you know what's going on there. Um, and and if, if any other history majors are listening, this is Gordon Moore's postulate from gosh, the 1970s that the amount of information you can put on a chip doubles roughly every 18 months. And I have honest, I could find you articles from 1988, 1989 or so that says the end of Moore's laws is in sight. It, it can't continue. Well, here we are 33 years later and there's no end in sight that I can see. Um, <clears throat> and that's enabled, you know, things like per second pr pricing for compute power in on Snowflake and, at, you know, and Amazon Web Services and the Google Cloud and Microsoft Cloud. Um, so what that means is um, computers as, as a general category can now process data um, I, at such a speed that the decision-making capability is now starting to outstrip human capability in a number of areas. And the place where probably everyone can just get an intuitive and emotional grasp on this is you know, the IBM chess computer will never again lose to a human being, right? And, and, and the Go computer from Google will never again lose to a human being. Um, so those are nice showcase applications that kind of bring the technology into a highlight, but similar things are going on everywhere. There's study after study that says AI makes better, um, uh, blanking on parole decisions than humans do, um, better sentencing decisions than humans do. Uh, in many cases, computers make better diagnoses than trained doctors do. Um, and I know this is really, uh, you know, you start wondering, okay, what are humans good for? And there's a lot of pushback against this. It can't be true. Oh no, that's impossible. You know, no, it's true. I mean, it just gets demonstrated time after time after time. Um, so now to bring that back to venture capital and my experience, um, as, as yet another data point that it's better to be lucky than good. When we found, when we, um, when we formed the Entrepreneurs Fund 4 back in 2013, 2014, we labeled it as an AI ML fund. And literally no one knew what AI and ML were. Um, we, now it looks like, well, of course it was, but at the time we felt a little bit prescient. And so we were looking for, you know, um, for lack of a better term, game-changing application areas that, that used early, what are now thought of as early implementations of AI. And so we wound up with portfolio investments in financial analytics. There's a company called True Value Labs, which got bought by FactSet last year that was using AI to look at environmental, social, and governance factors to help explain public stock prices. Um, we looked at it in mental, mental health and behavior health so that we've got a company called owl.health, um, which, you know, three or four years ago was when we made the investment was viewed as, as, uh, maybe the, the right word isn't insanity, but that's what people thought. And now if you look at, you know, if you're reading the news, there's just, there's billions of dollars pouring into this, into this market space. 
um, you know, particularly as people get kind of more anxious and confused and, and depressed during COVID. Um, there are applications of AI to um, industrial safety, uh, operations technology. Um, we've got an investment in a company. You know, the oil companies are trying to think how to use AI and machine learning to how do you drill an oil well with no humans in a danger zone? How do you run an offshore drilling rig with no humans? How do you use computers to do all this so that there's no risk of, you know, Deepwater Horizon, however many people got killed or injured, right? You don't, you don't want that to happen again. Um, and so this is just going everywhere. And so from a venture point of view, there are a couple of tricks. One is there are just too many opportunities. You can't, you can't evaluate them all. So you have to focus. Um, and at the same time, you want to have your head up enough above the, the close in horizon to say what's going to matter um, in a time frame that, you know, the companies you're investing in are going to become mature because that also is getting, we're, we're kind of bifurcating, um, you know, venture companies used to come to maturity in five to seven years, then it kind of in the SaaS world turned into seven to 10 years because of the revenue model. And now in the AI world, you have some that are growing very, very quickly. You get maturity in, in two to three years and some that are taking 10 or more. And so how do you, you know, from a venture industry structural perspective, that becomes a really interesting algorithm to try to go solve. Very interesting. Um, so like, how do you uh, feel um, the Yale community uh, in general uh, can can play a role in what's happening next with, with these big technology changes going on and uh, the, the paradigm shift in terms of the platform? Well, to the extent that people are involved in um, either developing these AI-based applications um, or in simply making policy around them, whether they're in law or healthcare or politics or, you know, pick your domain where you're going to use them, right? Um, um, they're really, you know, the, the, I think the technology innovation piece is, is kind of just the, you know, that's just the air we breathe every day in, in, in this time in the world. Um, where, where the policy and the implementation becomes a very meaningful question and topic for debate is as these algorithms get more and more powerful um, and they're, you know, they're what's, many of them are what's known as black box algorithms. So, you know, whoever's built it says, trust me, this is fair, it's right, it works, you don't have to worry about it. Well, that's a pretty big claim to make, right? So on one hand, you have to have some way to evaluate the algorithm. Um, and that's complicated, right? Are there, are there explicit biases that have been put in there? Are there implicit biases that have been put in there? How do you know it's actually working, right? And that's all kind of checking the algorithm. And then you've got the age old problem of garbage in, garbage out. If you're feeding it the wrong data and training it on the wrong data set, you're going to get garbage answers. Well, okay, so that's fine. Maybe someone may invest in the wrong stock, 
Well, what about now if you're talking about mortgage lending? Um, what if you're talking about parole decisions? What if you're talking about who gets access to higher education and who doesn't? Um, and and we very appropriately as a nation have been going through all these discussions and, and angst over um, you know DIE issues, diversity, you know, integration, inclusion. Um, um, how do you make sure technology isn't making them worse, right? And this and, and this becomes and, and the the potential for abuse for someone who wants to discriminate against a class or a group and and just plugs it into black box algorithms and says, well, hey, the computer said it's fine. Um, that's really a big risk, um, you know. And that's where we're starting to. Um, you know, we'll talk about futures a little bit here, but as we're starting to look at the next fund, um, starting to think really intently about how do you how do you start to invest in back companies where that are either mitigating that risk or, in fact, um, directly addressing and you know diminishing that risk. You know, one of our existing companies, Cognitive Scale out of Texas, actually has um, has a algorithm checker. I mean, that's what the product does. It looks for it looks for errors um, and biases um, to make sure that your black box isn't doing something that, in the end, you might not be particularly proud of. Very interesting. Very interesting. And if you were to pick, um, if you were to bet on the three areas that are most ripe for disruption um, by AI and machine learning, what would those be? Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so many. I mean, I think we all see what's happening with autonomous vehicles, right? Is is just kind of one that's that's already, you know, that horse is out of the barn. There will be far more innovation and and enhancement and improvement in that domain. But we all we all just see it already every day, right? Um, you know, what's going to happen when your Uber or your Lyft doesn't have a driver in it anymore? Um, before that, you're going to you're going to start to see long haul trucks without drivers. Um, you know, a friend of mine is um, chief information officer at a really big distribution company, and he goes, you know, the hardest job they have to fill is truck driver, um, because, you know, I, I I hope I don't offend anyone by saying this. I don't actually. I don't suspect there are many truck drivers out there with Yale degrees, right? You know, that's not the educational profile you think of, but I don't care where you went to college or if you went to college, people aren't stupid and the truck drivers see there is no long-term future in this career, right? It's gonna be taken over by the machines. So to your question about disruption, other careers that if I were in, I'd be really, really worried about accounting. Um, uh, many domains of kind of entry level law. Um, you know, I, we saw a great company a few years ago in a, you know, a startup contest that had parsed like the entire legal corpus of the province of Ontario and was just writing, writing up torts, writing up documents without any human intervention. I'd be really, you know, if I were on those career paths, I'd be really worried about it. Um, coding, computer science itself. Why do you need people to sling code when the computer is going to be able to do it better, faster, cheaper? Um, I'm going way past three, I know, but um, 
uh, well, let's make it top five. <laughs> um, I guess the the other two I'd add in just from my own personal areas of interest and exposure would be healthcare. Um, profound changes coming in healthcare, and then um, you know I called it OT operational technology a little bit earlier. You know, a, a, a almost a synonym would be the industrial Internet of Things. Um, but this really comes to, you know, information technology that is embedded in operational systems. And we've already seen this for, for decades in, you know, robotic factories. Um, you know, the, the, the infamous uh, automobile plant, I think it was in Michigan during the, you know, 2016 campaign. Sure, they brought it back. But the first time it was there, it employed 750 people. And when it came back, it employed two. Okay, <laughs> you know how does that really change, right? Um, and you know, again, I'm I'm connected into CIOs of some of the oil companies, and the examples I gave of drilling a well and running an offshore platform come from discussions with them. But pick your classic American industrial company, and there's still, I mean, I've toured a fiberglass factory. And the fiberglass factory hasn't changed in 150 years. There are still pits of molten glass at 2000 degrees Celsius sitting there that people have to walk around. Not a great place. How do you, how do you systematize that in a way that no one's in danger? Um, and there are lots of different ways to tackle it, but I, I think this industrial employee health and safety broadly defined is gonna be a huge area for disruption over the next several years. Wow. Stephen Plume, Managing Director, Entrepreneurs Fund, thank you so much for your time today. Um, before I uh, let you off the hook, um, how can people reach out to you? Um, best way is, yeah, best way is, is LinkedIn. Um, that's that's yes. the, you know, quote unquote, social medium that I use the most. Um, you know, what I would say, and, and this is kind of true for anyone who's interested in reaching out to a venture capitalist, um, uh, unsolicited uh, business plans don't go far. <laughs> they go straight from inbox to, to, to garbage. Um, and one of the reasons I like LinkedIn is um, if you're innovative enough to find a way to get an introduction from someone I already know and trust, you're innovative enough to run a startup. And if you can't wait your past, make your way past that first pretty simple hurdle, you probably don't belong running a startup. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Steve. And uh, you know, we'll look forward to uh, more of these conversations down the road. Okay, thanks, Willie. Pleasure yeah. to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.